Alicia Holdaway, your immediate past president of 2020. I'm Steve Perry, president-elect this year. I'll be board president next year. Jennifer Gilchrist, I am a director on the Salt Lake Board. Shane Norris, I'm general counsel for local brokerage and on the UAR Forms Committee and chair of the Park City Board Forms Committee. All right. Well, this is officially our first episode of the Salt Lake Board of Realtors podcast of 2021. I'm still convinced that this is simply we're headed into the 14th month of 2020, but the calendar says 2021. So we'll go with that. Um, and uh, as you know, Matt Ulrich is your president of this year. Um, I'm just stepping in as he is um, out on vacation. So um we are going to talk about a little known uh situation that comes up in real estate every once in a while i mean i don't know that any of us have really any experience with it but it's called multiple offers um <laughs> uh yeah obviously all of us are dealing with a lot of multiple offers and both on the listing side on the seller side or excuse me the buyer side and so we thought um we're so so grateful that Shane Norris has joined us today. Um, he has a lot of experience in helping the boards, both UAR and local boards, um, you know, really navigate the legal side of things. And um, so thanks for joining us today, Shane. Uh, what I want to talk about is just, you know, as we look at the reality of this market, and I mean, as of yesterday, we had less than 500 total units for sale. That's all housing types in Salt Lake County. That is mind blowing. Um, I think Utah County was like 78, something crazy. So clearly the demand far outweighs the supply. And um, I don't know about you guys, but I don't see an end to this anytime soon. Interest rates, uh, all the uh, experts are saying that they're going to stay steady and stay low. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of factors that play into that. So Shane, what, from a legal perspective, what is, um, what are some common kind of legal pitfalls that you're seeing come up in these crazy offers that people are getting real creative with. What are a couple of things that you're seeing right now that you think are some dangerous waters? Yeah, I think that's kind of the key to all of this is the market has become so unusual and so frenzied that there is a level of desperation on the part of buyers now, where before when we get questions about multiple offers, it was always from the listing agent on how do we handle multiple offers. And now a lot of the questions are from buyer's agents on what, how do I create language to make my offer stand out uh, apart from others? And that has caused um, earnest money being non-refundable immediately upon acceptance, offers about appraisals, uh, be, being willing to pay above appraised value and creative language dealing with that, removing contingencies in general, removing appraisal contingencies, removing finance, making earnest money go non-refundable later. It's just a frenzy of new language that people are trying to create. And anytime agents are attempting to create language to deal with particular situations, that's where the real danger comes from. I mean, I got an offer on a property that the buyer's agent offered to buy new clubs for my, like golf clubs for my seller and put it in the offer. <laughs> I mean, 
Yeah, we're seeing some wild things. So what would you say is the number one thing that you um, get the most questions on from a buyer's agent in terms of, can I do this in an offer or how do I do this in an offer? Um, I mean, earnest money has become a key ticking point, but that's, but because of the danger in that, I think buyer's agents are a little bit nervous about doing that. So we're not seeing that to the type of extreme that we are with really the appraisal contingency. Um, and buyers agents are attempting to get really creative with that. And we've seen problematic language with that, but that's probably one of the top requests I get. Well, I shouldn't say that. The two top requests I get right now is requests for language on how do I do appraisal language on being willing to pay more than the appraised value. And then we are seeing just a constant request for escalation clause language. Um, I think that's probably became the, become the number one go-to for buyers agents because when it at the end of the day, price is the most thing, but a combination of those two is really what we're seeing a lot. I have two comments on that, or two questions really quick. Um, one, is the division gonna be coming up with um, approved language for that, uh, for those scenarios? Um, and two, well, answer that one first. So the division, let's, let's make sure we're clear on who's creating forms. The division has some of their forms that are mandatory. They won't be doing escalation clause language. The UAR forms committee is the one that is creating forms that oh, yeah. sometimes can be, you know, used on the fly. Like that's where the COVID-19 addendum came from was UAR. So UAR forms committee has discussed escalation clause language probably for three straight years now on whether or not they wanted to create that. And I think most attorneys involved and the forms committee heads have been reluctant to do that because they didn't want to create a situation where this became a norm because escalation clauses are so dangerous and are so difficult to navigate. Um, but I think if the market keeps going the way it is going now, we could we could see that in 2021 where, where we do have an escalation clause um, become a standard UAR form. It's gonna be hard to get away um, I had some buyers that submitted an offer and there were 56 offers and they were all escalation clauses and the listing agent did not know how to handle the escalation of escalation of escalation. So what's your uh, thoughts on that? So from the listing side, my perspective is basically don't, don't, don't use the escalation clause. So a lot of listing agents don't understand that when they receive an escalation clause, they're not bound to just accept it and then escalate off of what their next highest offer is, which is the real problem that you have when you have multiple escalations. It goes to infinity and you never have an end price on that. You can easily just counter. So if you have you know 20 different escalation clauses and some of them aren't capped and so it's escalating forever, it's really a position of we need to figure out what our what our purchase price really needs to be what a true purchase price for this property is and just counter the best offer, the best two offers. And instead of going off of escalations, turn it into a multiple offer counter and lock your price in. So it's clear you're not agreeing to the escalation, but you're just going to counter the terms that you want to counter because it gets ridiculous at some point. And there's no way that a, that a buyer is really going to pay that, that price that it's escalated to. So why put yourself in a position where you're gonna be fighting about that weeks later? Shane, you said, um, you know, escalation clauses are dangerous. Um, I personally am a fan of them. Um, I used to hate them, 
But then once I was able to uh, truly have a language within an escalation clause that kind of dealt with Pandora's box that I felt that they opened up, um, I felt more comfortable with them. But it really is, you know, I feel like I have to educate the listing agent oftentimes in how to read the escalation clause that I send. So what do you, what are some pitfalls um, or dangers that people get into when drafting their own escalation clause? I mean, I think what you said right there is the biggest danger is people are drafting their own escalation clause and they haven't thought through all of the different pitfalls. And so there's a question of, are you going to put in a cap? Um, are you escalating off of the highest offer or do you use language that you're just sort of winging where then it becomes a question of what exactly are you escalating off of? Are you requiring them to provide a copy of the offer that you're escalating off of? Do you have language that states what happens if they are accepting? In other words, we're going to get the actual purchase price into an addendum. We've seen situations before um, when I've represented other brokerages where they didn't find out until settlement that there actually was another offer that they had escalated off of because there was no language in there requiring even a notification of that. So there was a fight at settlement over what the, even the price was. So the creation of just agents creating their own escalation language is probably the number one risk. And then it's going through and making sure that you understand everything that is needed in a real escalation clause to make sure that there isn't, you're not finding out right before your settlement that the price is different than what you and your client thought and the lender thought more importantly. Steve, you, you know, manage a lot of agents. What are you, what does this conversation look like around uh, with your agents? Well, the escalation clause is the biggest thing. It's so confusing. Um, I had one agent call me the other day, had 19 offers. They made a spreadsheet so that they could explain it to their seller, which I thought was was really good to give them the, the highs and lows of each individual offer because they wanted to see all the offers. The problem became where um, a couple of the offers uh, said that it they were getting a loan, but they weren't going to require an appraisal. And so there's pitfalls in that, right? And they don't, and the agents weren't thinking it all through, like, well, they won't necessarily loan if the appraisal doesn't come in or if there's not an appraisal, right? So they're creating problems without thinking it through, you know, and, and so it's really tough. It's, it's difficult to try to navigate the waters. I really like what Shane said. And you don't have to do certain things. You can just send back in your counter terms that the seller wants and it removes some of the confusion. I think that's one um, maybe groundwork that we should lay down right now is um, I think a lot of people, uh, a lot of agents don't even understand that the, there's a multiple offer disclosure form, right? And um, helping your sellers from the get-go because, I mean, I put this in my listing packet at this point because the expectation, I shouldn't say expectation, but the, we anticipate we're going to get multiple offers, right? The numbers just don't lie. Um, and so when you're looking at uh, what, is, what, are my sell, what is my seller's option to respond to a multiple offer scenario, um, most, I think a lot of agents don't even understand that there's different approaches and it's not up to us. It's up to the seller. So I would highly, highly encourage every single agent that's listening to this podcast to go pull up within the MLS, 
the multiple offer disclosure form, and it goes through three different types of approaches that you can take with your sellers. You can uh, simply decide to deal with one offer. You can just simply decide, I love this this offer, I'm going to either accept or counter this offer and just leave the others alone. We'll reject them or not do anything with the rest. Um, we can uh, present multiple offers. So we can give all of the multiple offers to them and um, let them choose how they're going to handle that. Um, or they can um, simply say to the marketplace, bring your highest and best um, offer and we will have a answer you know we're going to accept until this time and we'll have an answer um i think the one that's most often misunderstood is that you can counter multiple offers at the same time as long as you use the proper uh, uh addendum that doesn't pre you know doesn't obligate your seller to sell to multiple uh, buyers if in fact multiple people accept their counter so I just, um, any, any thoughts on that form and, and the use of it, the importance of it? I mean, I think you're absolutely right. And what, what Steve said is really important as well. And that goes back to agents understanding their contract. So on the, on the multiple offer um, disclosure, it's does the agent understand everything that's in that disclosure? Have they read that? Can they explain it to their client? When the client has that questions about how we're going to handle these, do they know how to use the multiple offer addendum? Or have they always just done highest and best? But it also goes back to understanding the real estate purchase contract. Because when we're getting creative with these terms, what Steve said about just removing the appraisal condition, but they still have a finance condition. What did that even do? They can still cancel for finance. So how did that, did that mean they're not going to get an appraisal? Does that mean if it appraises low, they now no longer can cancel? We've, we've seen this situation where agents are just trying to set apart their buyer because the agent and the buyer have become so desperate to, to get an offer accepted that they may be doing things that create situations where nobody really knows how this contract is gonna be interpreted when they start just removing things and have they explained exactly how that's gonna happen. But I think it starts on both sides. If I love having the multiple offer disclosure in your seller's package so they understand before you ever hit the market, this is what we may be talking about. This is what the situation we're going to be in depending on who's making these offers, these are the different ways that we can handle it. But also really have conversations with your buyers about how are we going to handle these things when we're in a multiple offer situation? What can you do to be able to come in? How much can you pay above appraised value if that becomes an issue? But also talk to your brokers and talk to your attorneys to find out if I do remove contingencies, if I do remove conditions, what does that mean for my contract and what does that mean for my buyer? I think, I mean, gosh, we probably sound, uh, if anybody listens to more than one episode, um, we might sound like broken records here, but. I don't think we can stress the importance enough of taking a step back and being the professional. Um, I was just having a conversation with a good friend of mine who is in British Columbia, um, Canada, um, a realtor there, and she was helping some clients make an offer on a property. And ultimately, and she thought she knocked it out of the park with her terms and everything. And ultimately, it went $230,000 over asking price. And, you know, it, in our discussion, it wasn't a grossly underpriced listing. Um, 
And, you know, we took a step back and said, it's probably a benefit your buyer didn't get that offer. Aren't you kind of glad they didn't get accepted in that situation? Like that is somewhere at some point, we have to be the, the voice of reason with our clients, right? We can't make their decisions for them. That's not what I'm saying. But at some point we have to be the ones to, to kind of help them take a deep breath. We need to take a deep breath, take a step back and really ask, you know, this is a, a 30 year commitment or a 15 year commitment, or like, you know, you're committing to this mortgage. Um, what does this really look like for you? Because I think so often we get caught up in winning that we forget that there's life after we won that offer. So I just, I can't stress the importance enough of just the professionalism, being the one who is not emotionally chaotic and frantic because your buyers will be, your sellers will be. So just that reminder to be the one who's steadfast. If you literally need to take a step back and, and breathe for a minute before you step into that conversation, then do it, right? Yeah, I would also suggest that you definitely look to your, your broker and your peers within your company to discuss things before you go talk to your clients sometimes so that you have an understanding of, of what you need to discuss with your client. There's, there's a lot of confusing things that happen. Um, offers that are 80,000 above list price, but then they write in language, um, are willing to go $10,000 cash above appraised value. So it's like, okay, you're really only offering 10,000 above praise value then, right? So it's just so convoluted sometimes that uh, you need to bounce it off other people sometimes just to kind of clear your head. I agree with you. And actually, um, before we started recording, hey. I brought up that point um, about, you know, the language that can be really confusing with a, uh, offering to pay a certain dollar amount over appraised value. Shane, we've had some good conversation around this. Um, talk to us about the question that comes up around that. Well, I, the, the standard language that you see is exactly what Steve said, that the buyer will pay 10000 above appraised value. And the question that's arisen from agents and brokerages that have come to UAR and the Salt Lake Board and to me is, what does that mean for the seller? Has the seller now automatically agreed that they will lower the price um, to 10,000 above appraised value? Do we not even have a real purchase price now where the appraisal is the thing that is setting our purchase price? And then what UAR's attorneys have said, and what I agree with is, if you're just stating that buyer agrees that they will pay 10,000 above appraised value, that the seller hasn't agreed to anything at that point. The buyer is just making an offer to the seller that I'm willing to do this. But because of that ambiguity, even though most attorneys would interpret that, that it's not binding on the seller. The language that I've created that Alicia, you and I have talked about is you need to spell that out. You need to say that the seller is not obligated to accept uh, a lower purchase price and that any change in price will be set forth in a separate addendum. Or if what you really want is we're going to set the price based on the appraisal, say that, say that if it appraises and you, Usually you get a range of price then that it won't be below a price or above a price, but say that in your addendum, because if we just have it with this, this sort of blank in it, where it doesn't say anything about what the seller's agreeing to, that's where we're seeing the conflicts occurring later when the appraisal actually does come in and it's widely different than what the purchase price is. And now you have buyers and sellers threatening to sue each other over that. So Shane, you're, you're suggesting 
that in a counter, the seller would need to specify that the the seller is not obligated to sell below the contractor. Doesn't the contract already basically just say that anyway? I don't believe the seller needs to counter because I think the contract always already says that. But the language that I created when it, when my agents have asked me, you know, how do we do this is I spell that out that the seller is not going to have that obligation because it, it accomplishes two things. My agent now knows and my buyer now knows that the seller hasn't agreed to lower the price that really we're giving this as an as an incentive to the seller to accept our offer. We're willing to do this, but you haven't agreed to anything yet. But that also, if you want to set yourself apart from other agents and other brokerages, having that language that spells that out shows that you're a professional and that you understand what this is. And you're telling the seller you're not agreeing to this where they may look at somebody else's language and not know what we're agreeing to and not agreeing to. So I think it, it accomplishes three different things there if you actually do go that extra step. And I think this about any addendums that you create. Create your addendum, have your someone else that you're close to. What Steve said is right. Go to somebody else in your office and don't tell them what you mean by this. Just ask them what they think your addendum means because, it, because it's too often we have buyer's agents and listing agents where they both understand what each other means, but that doesn't mean their clients understand it. And more importantly, that doesn't mean that a judge would understand it if it ever ended up in court, which is what we really don't want to have happen. That's a really good suggestion um, and goes back to the fine line that we walk, right? In, in that we aren't contract lawyers and, um, you know, we should not be stepping into the, the lane of a contract lawyer in drafting our own language. Um, and, uh, you know, yet we have this blank addendum that gives us some, some freedom to put language in. So I think everybody can, can attest to, you can get the same intent written in a hundred different ways. And because there's, you know, 9,800 realtors across the Wasatch front <laughs> right now at the Salt Lake board, right? And so that's uh, different interpretations of language. So to, to take a, an addendum to somebody else and not tell them what you're intending to say, but say, how do you read this? How do you perceive what I'm trying to say? I think that's a really powerful practice. I've never done that before. That's, that's a good idea. Okay, well, that wraps up our discussion for this episode. Um, of course, <laughs> well, there's a lot to talk about here, so it's not going to make it into one single show. So check out the next episode where we continue this discussion. And you guys, thanks for joining. We love having this pod podcast as a resource for you. And just a reminder that if you have a comment or a show topic that you'd like our panel to discuss, you can reach out on Facebook, um, by email, you can text me. We'd love to hear it. Thanks for listening.